This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When an original investigation doesn't cover all of the issues that it should, families have very few options. Some spend all their savings hiring investigators or experts they try to find out as much as they can on their own. But investigations can be complex and time-consuming. So few families can afford to pay for all the help that they need. That's why crowdsourcing is such a great resource for families still searching for answers to what happened to their loved one. I have a great resource of private investigators that I work with, but I could never make as much progress on my cases without my crowdsource volunteers. Author Stephen King once said, the truth is in the details. And in researching the details of the deaths of Katie River and Aiden Major, we have uncovered some truly shocking details. We have approximately 100 people working on this case. Think about that. I know it's in different groups. Not all of them have hours upon hours to give. Like, you know, not everybody could have gone to South Carolina and spent two days with Vicki copying and scanning. But they give the time that they can give between school, being mothers, working, some males. They'll email me or tell me something and they'll interact with me. Vicki, in this particular case, is getting the experience of all these people. And more people are coming on and wanting to get involved. I've had a couple of new former attorneys, defense attorneys, and um, I'm really excited to see what they have to bring, you know, and talk about and say about the cases. But what I really want to let people know is how much we are giving to this family to find answers that should have been given 12 years ago. So the group that Kendra and Chelsea are leading are gathering information, doing Freedom of Information Act requests by law, and Lori, you can correct me, Freedom of information is a right that we have as citizens to get. Am I right? Well, maybe we don't. No, you you are right. But typically when you read the statutes from different jurisdictions, they will almost always include exemptions. 
reasons that they can legally tell you, no, you can't have it. And depending on which statute you're looking at, um, what your jurisdiction is, some of those exemptions are drafted very broadly on purpose so that if they want to tell you no, they can usually find a reason um, that they can make a decent argument to turn you down. Then you end up having to go to court um, possibly and, and wait to see how a judge interprets their decision. And so we have legally asked for information and we are going to go through, not in this episode, what we've asked for and the response of Berkeley County. We want people to know this is what we asked for. They can make their own decision whether or not it is reasonable And this is the response we got from Berkeley County. And we also are going to let people know who's making that decision on behalf of the citizens in Berkeley County. What Kendra and Chelsea have done this weekend is gathered the 12 years of information that Vicki has gotten through freedom of information legally. We're going to dissect what information she was given and what state it is. Now, every jurisdiction has its own definition of what an official record is and what it should contain, but there are many similarities. In broad terms, they are original documents that are legally recognized as being true, correct, and complete. Jurisdictions must keep them for certain periods defined by statute. Certain records are considered public information with certain exceptions. Copies must be made available to anyone who asks for them. I think Rachel mentioned that the last time she talked to Katie, Katie had said she was having a boy. And Vicki says, Rachel, I just want to thank you so much for telling me about that last email. It wasn't officially in the file, so I was never told about it. I will treasure it forever. Without you telling me, I would never know. I'll be sharing this with the whole family over Thanksgiving. God bless you. I don't know, because it shows Katie being happy and excited about having a boy a day before she supposedly commits suicide. In this whole thread of them going back and forth, Rachel says, hey, I'm so sorry you are dealing with all of this. It is so, so terrible. I don't know what happened. I only know that when I talked to her on the phone, she was very paranoid and talking really strange things. I will say that the investigator told me some things about the case when he talked to me, and he was already convinced it was suicide. As an investigator, I know that when I talk to witnesses, I'm looking to get information from them not give information to them. So I'm careful how I phrase my questions, and I don't tell them what the other witnesses have said to me. Each situation is different, but the rule of thumb is to get information true and accurate. She also says, no, I didn't know she was suicidal. If I did, I wouldn't have not just got off the phone with her. I would have reached out to people in South Carolina to be with her. She was talking about problems with the church, and I don't remember specifics, but Pastor Cal in some type of conspiracy theory. 
I knew it sounded very paranoid and odd, but I counseled her and encouraged her biblically the best that I knew how to. She said, yes, that doesn't sound she was very suicidal. It sounds like she was happy and looking forward to the future, ordering clothes. It is very odd that he was talking about those things when his wife and child were missing, meaning Aaron. As far as the paranoia with the church goes, it was Aaron's family that was saying that the church Katie and Aaron were going to was preparing the way for the Antichrist. So even if Katie was talking about that kind of stuff, I think she's reflecting the paranoia of the majors. And she's like, what in the world do I do with this? This is crazy talk. I don't think that that necessarily means that she was buying into any of it or or paranoid herself. I think she was trying to figure out, you know, I found all this junk on the computer. They're telling me all these crazy things. What do I do? I get when I was talking to Vicki just a little bit ago, she said that um, Aaron, she said like Aaron had been kind of talking about, I want to make sure I get it right, but talking about how he thought Pastor Cal was working with Billy Graham and stuff and saying all this stuff. So maybe Katie was going to another friend who is part of the church to try and bounce these theories off them. And the reason she sounds like she's paranoid and crazy is because she's trying to express to her friend what Aaron had been telling her and saying like, what do you think about this? Like, does this sound legitimate or, you know what I mean? So then she sounds like she's paranoid and crazy because she's spewing the same stuff that Aaron had been talking to her about. Just adding on, Katie had a strong religious upbringing and a very strong faith. She worked in a Christian bookstore for five years. So, you know, keep in mind, Katie's very religious. She's not crazy because of that. She's not a fanatic, right? She's just very religious. God's an important part of her life. Her emails indicated she had concerns. I'm sure Aaron exacerbated them. But it's legitimate to believe that Katie could have had some concerns with what the church was teaching. You know, I've had concerns with what my church teaches. You know, I think for religious people, sometimes we struggle with the message we hear, right? So I don't think that that necessarily makes her crazy and, you know, wanting to kill herself. I can understand being conflicted and wanting to discuss that with a friend that shares your belief system. When you were reading that, Chelsea, I was watching the reaction. When you were reading about the officer saying things. Stephanie, do you want to take your reaction and talk about it? I will say that the investigator told me some things about the case when he talked to me and he was already convinced it was suicide. For example, she had some sort of note in her pocket and that she took her rings off and put them in her pocket because she was in a fight with Aaron or something. They also didn't write the incident report for Rachel until June. They interviewed her in January, but they didn't write the report till June. Well, and they also mentioned in there that they were getting deployed. So when did she move? Probably didn't write it until after she moved. You write your reports as soon as you finish. You download the interviews. If you've recorded them, you transcribe them. You send them to the attorneys or you put them in the case files. When you do a report, you put everything in it. 
if it's not in there, it didn't happen, and you don't go back and insert your opinion, you only put what the person says. Best practices for investigators include writing up reports as soon as possible after interviewing a witness or suspect. It's interesting to me why a couple of key statements weren't written up until right before a big meeting where those very statements were needed to show that the first investigation was adequate. So they wanted to take the reports that they wrote right before to fit their narrative. Again, not, we're not taking the reports that were written right after interviewing the witnesses, but how many months later in order to go to a meeting to basically dictate the way the case is going to go. It did say in the incident report, she was troubled about the pending election. I mean, also the religious element. Let me just give you my short version of what my reaction is to her saying all that is that from beginning of the time at 830, when they say Hampton Robinson called in, to 911 to report the truck. They didn't. The whole thing was set up. They they inserted everybody into a timeline. They're building their own their own version of what happened and what they want everybody to believe. So even if I'm Rachel, if I'm Rachel and Katie's my best, what you're talking about, maybe just because I'm not on the same page, we're not driving. But then the police are telling me all these other things too, like they're fighting and there's a note in her pocket. I've seen multiple <laughs> news articles. I've heard about it from other people. I'm thinking maybe it was a little bit strange. Maybe it was weirder than I originally thought it was, you know, and then also take what happened to her sister, which is also extremely odd. It just becomes compounded that a whole, what all happened, what she's like, we or like Stephanie said at the beginning, we grow up believing that the police are telling us the truth. She has no reason to necessarily believe at that point. They're not, unless she knows something we don't know about everything that's happening. But the whole thing from 8.30 when Hampton is supposed to have called in to the time she's interviewed is nothing but a skewed story, in my opinion. The police are legally allowed to lie to suspects. So it's not a big stretch to think that if it suited their purposes, they would lie to witnesses. So we have Dean Kokinda, Rick Olick, Dwayne, and Daryl Lewis. That's it? Yeah, I think that's it for the law enforcement. Okay. So let's take it apart. Dean Kokinda, who is outraged on 48 hours that the investigation was done so poorly at the beginning, what he failed to mention is he was the investigator participating in the first investigation. He is the one who is directing some of the information coming in. But in 2018, he's outraged at the way the investigation went, never mentioning he was part of the investigation. So we're going to talk about that later. Then you have Rick Olick, who can't remember anything when he's asked about emails that he never responded to. It is such stunning visual TV that I have probably increased the number of people watching 48 hours because I keep mentioning it. 
he can't remember anything. He doesn't remember not talking to Vicki. He can't remember not being available to Vicki. He's the investigator. But in 2018, when he can be on TV, he's on TV. He's the great investigator, had all these great ideas when he's talking on camera. But when he's asked about it, he can't remember anything. He knew that this was being produced. He knew that 48 Hours was asking questions, was doing all this. This was not an ambush. He had ample time to review whatever was in the case file, to talk to his colleagues. What do you remember? And either he just has the absolute worst memory I've ever seen, or he did not care. Kendra actually found a heartbreaking email that, I mean, if you want to see what what their lack of response did to the family, you should have Kendra read that email. That was, that tore me apart. This was emailed on May 13th of 2008. So just about four months after, um, after Katie had passed away and River and Aiden. Um, and it looks like it, it was in regard to Mother's Day. So she sends it. Don't know if this is worth writing. Don't know if anyone is listening. Had pictures of Katie left on our truck after church on Sunday, after church on Mother's Day. I put four things back on the gravesite on Mother's Day. And when I went there yesterday, saw Aaron and his mom there. All the things I put back were gone. A squirrel, bird, windmill, and birdhouse were gone. I saw Aaron throwing something in the woods. Aaron was obviously having a fit at gravesite. There was a footmark with fresh spit on the ground and what looks to be like the letter V spray painted in red. Is anyone listening? What have I done but try to find the truth on what happened that night? They too should want to know what happened. My God, no one is listening. There is something wrong here. Vicki. How do you respond to that? I needed a moment. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. And actually, how devastating for a mom to have to write that. And, and the question regarding this one isn't just, why weren't you more of a professional? Why weren't you more of a human? Vicki shared, um, it was a little horse uh, figurine that had been left at the site. Um, and actually, she went to the police again. This time they did something about it. I don't know the year, but they went to Aaron and they said, you got to put it back. And so Aaron actually went and put it back on the gravesite, but the tail was snapped off. When 48 Hours came to town, the police put a camera out there. So now the gravesite has a camera on it. But she said it's a very obvious camera, you know, and especially to a hunter like Aaron. It, it's not like it's going to be a, a secret hidden camera. It, it's, you know, behave yourself till 48 Hours is out of here. And, um, of course, the cameras caught nothing. They were up for a short time and there was no activity. So when 48 hours left, the camera left. I don't know the exact timing, but yes, it was very short duration.
There were other investigators as well. From available records, it does not appear that they uncovered anything that moved the investigation forward, despite the fact that officials were saying that they did not believe Katie committed suicide. But her death certificate doesn't reflect this new opinion. Now, Dwayne Lewis is the sheriff in town. Um, I have heard a lot about him from Vicki and then other people writing in telling me um, their dealings with him. One of the things that is interesting to me is as a community, they have a Facebook page. I am sure this case is being talked about. However, the public Facebook page, they're not allowing people to post what they think on that page. So if somebody posts something, they take it down. That's up to the citizens in the community to decide if that's okay or not. They have a voice and they can write in to the council members or not. That's up to them. But I know that I would want my voice to be heard in that community if I lived there. Perfect metaphor for Katie's case. Like, you only get to say, we only are going to put out there what we want out there and the rest of it. You don't get to talk about it. Same on our Facebook page. Kendra might know, are there other Facebook pages for Berkeley County? Not their official page, but like, you know, the community pages. And has anybody talked about it on there that you've seen? Um, So I'm in about four different Berkeley County pages. And no, I do not see the case discussed anywhere. Because again, she gets press here. The press is very pro-Katie, pro-Vicky. It doesn't make sense to me. But again, maybe because, and again, it's my speculation, but maybe it's just expected. Maybe it's just, there's such a history here of that that maybe it's just not shocking to anyone anymore. I did notice, and I don't know if it was the same boards that Kendra were on, and I haven't gone back to see the ones that I'd seen, but when 48 Hours came out, there was a few people that came out and would talk about things. But from my memory, and it's been maybe six weeks now, anybody that kind of spoke up, it felt like there's some people that just kind of hushed them up or, you know, kind of shut them down really quickly. But there, yeah, there wasn't much. What's the, what is the one thing each of you has, has heard or found out in this case that has shocked you the most? And I'm going to start with Danielle on this because, you know, there has been... No, you'll know what I'm going to say. I know. Go ahead. What shocked me the most about this case is the crime scene and how it could be said that she was hit by a train. Her body is intact. It's, there's no blood. And so that to me is the largest question mark in this whole case is how are they going to prove that she was supposedly hit by a train there? I think the scene definitely looks staged. The clothing, the tears on the clothing don't match the cuts on the body. Uh, I don't know how you can have that be how you can have a long cut down the back of her leg and not have an injury on the back of her leg to match it. So there, there's it, it just two plus two is not equaling four. I think for me, it has been the revelations of personality work and practices that the people have. 
it, it's one of those things where, you know, we kind of say, you can't make this stuff up. Every time I think I've heard the weirdest thing someone has said or done, I just have to wait a few hours. And then somebody on the team says, oh, gosh, look at this. And you're like, well, yep, you, you topped what I thought was the strangest. It just, it never seems to end. You know, when we first started looking at this case, I was just like, why does it nothing, nothing makes sense. Like, I can't make heads or tails of what's going on. It, it, nothing makes sense. And then I happened upon the newspaper articles. And then I was like, oh, okay, it makes a little bit more sense. And then we heard from Jessica that we had uh, a poor witness statement. It was false. And then... I was like, all right, making more sense now. And then we found a couple of others that are were very suspect that we think are probably not accurate either. And then Jessica laid out the bombshell that Hampton Robinson called the major house on the morning that Katie and, and River were found, which was just astounding to me because I had a suspicion that it wasn't a good witness statement either for one because he didn't call 911 or he wasn't on the records but for other reasons as well that just just the way things were worded and the newspaper articles and other things but when she said that I was like it's been staged from the beginning the whole thing not one in my opinion not much if anything if anything is is actual fact there's so many every time I you know you, you said that and I'm like I I can't pick one, but, you know, obviously the fact that there's perpendicular and, you know, tears up and down, tears sideways, a, a puncture that is a perfect circle that if, okay, if you're hit by a train and you're punctured with something, it's going to continue and tear. It's not going to poke in and not you know, tear the skin. But as we go farther in the case, what really is disturbing to me is the fact that even as people graduate out of the case, there's always a few that are still in it. And and it's, Vicky said it from the beginning. And like, look, Kokinda was in the beginning. Now Kokinda's in also the later investigation. You have Salisbury, who is the coroner. Salisbury retires, but he's special deputized, so he can still go in and see all the records. He can, he can pretty much, you know, he's still a part of the, you know, he can do whatever he wants. He can walk into the building. He can look at the records. He can do this and that. He's just not getting paid. No matter where she goes, it seems that someone with some sort of connection to the case is always there. It's never a fresh team with no links. You know, that is disturbing to me. That that in my eyes creates a problem. You're not getting a fresh look. You're always got someone there who's you know bringing back the past investigation instead of a clean look. So I guess I would say that is something that really stuck out to me. One other thing that shocks me on this case it, that these handwritten statements are handwritten by police, not the people giving the statements. And it's more than one. It looks like even Hampton Robinson's, which is handwritten, I suspect from the the address and the time below, it looks to me like that was likely the one who witnessed that actually did the writing. And it's just, it's, it's not just one. I mean, it's at least three. 
So that sticks out to me. The two things that stand out to me um, the most would be Aaron knowing where Katie and River were and Aiden. You know, he was looking at it around 10 o'clock in the morning, computer searches that show that he was, you know, looking up that location. And then he supposedly hears it on the radio, which has been verified by the police when they went to the radio station, that there was syndicated radio going on at that time, they would not do anything local. They would only do something big, like if, you know, like a 9-11 happened or something. So it's impossible for him to have known about that. And then also the other thing that he knew was the note. He, I believe he knew that it was written in pen and that was after the funeral. So the, to know, you know, Vicki didn't know that. They didn't know anything about the note. So to know that detail, that it was written in pen, that stands out to me as well. I think he knew that it was written in different inks and different, different pens, like multiple types of pen. So to me, that's contamination again, because why would the police be sharing that information with a possible suspect. And then thirdly, I just remembered because we were talking about the note, why is there no blood on that note? Um, with the femoral artery being severed, how could that note not have any blood on it? Something Chelsea pointed out with the shoe also at the scene. The shoe is not like ripped off of her foot. The shoe is open, laces are pulled. So if she were to have walked out there, she'd have walked out of those shoes two steps in. Here are my issues with this case. They bring Vicki in and tell her the case is closed. They will not let her tape record what they're saying. If they are the authorities and they're so above board, then why won't you let the victim's family record what you're saying? They closed down when Vicki's attorney was viewed online and they found that he is a very well-known attorney, and then they closed the meeting down. Why would you do that? Why would you not sit there and answer questions of an attorney? Why would you not let the victim's family tape record what you're saying? You know, this is a way to control cases, to tell the family they cannot record and to intimidate them, basically. You know, bring them into a police station, say you can't record, can't bring an attorney. They don't like that. Or if you bring one in, they shut it down. And if you can string the family along long enough, you're playing out the statute of limitations. And then they cannot proceed with civil litigation against anybody they think may be in part or in whole responsible for their loved one's death. The police absolutely know how that works. Right. And if you don't sue or if you're not able to do a wrongful death, then you can't question the work they've done right. or haven't done. I think one of the methods of controlling a case is to scare the family. Don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to the press. You'll ruin the case. I think that was used with Vicki. And Vicki, to me, is someone who listens or listen to authority and whatever they said she did because she felt like they were looking at her daughter's case 12 years later the same people that's shocking to me the other thing that is really upsetting and if you guys want to chime in go ahead the contaminated interviews 
telling a witness what another witness said, unless the information doesn't matter, but at the beginning of the investigation, the information mattered. Katie's state of mind, Katie's notes or concerns or anything. You don't tell a witness that someone's fighting with their husband, they're writing notes, it's stuffed in their pocket, the rings are in their pocket. You don't tell them that kind of stuff. You listen, you write it down, you go back to the station. Most investigators that I work with now would have written the report. These issues are not complicated and easy to miss. They are PI 101. This all goes down Wednesday night, right? The, the bodies are all found on Thursday. Friday, Rhonda calls Vicki. Aaron wants a private serum, or private gravesite service. Jeff and Vicki are very upset. They get in the car. They drive over to Aaron's house. Rhonda and David are there with Aaron. And in comes Rick Alec and uh, Salisbury. And they say it's a suicide. They haven't even done an investigation yet. Getting back to the interviews, 10 years later, after 48 hours, after 48 hours aired, you have two witnesses call Rick Alec, who's not in charge of the investigation, and use the same verbiage, wording, as witnesses who came up with the paranoid psychosis statements. I am going to go through their statements and we're going to compare them to statements from before. It's like very disturbing how like certain words are the same and I can't remember what they are at the moment which is surprising for me but um, I think it was something along those lines of though like being postpartum. Postpartum psychosis. Think about this. You've got, oh, I know Stephanie has it, but you've got two witnesses that are talking about someone who came into the store and they remember that she has depression and postpartum psychosis. Ten years later, you call Rick Olick. So, of course, I want to tease out that relationship to these people. But there's only one statement, right? There's not two. She just well, we talked to a second one recently. You did talk to, okay, you talked to Jennifer. So we talked to two of them, yeah. I was just going to say, it's very interesting how there's, in several of the these witness statements, how there's a second person, but that person's never, never interviewed. Well, going back to the witness statements also in the incident report are the neighbors from across the street that lived there. They were never interviewed. They see activity at three in the morning um, because the husband's coming home from work and um, they only interview the wife. They didn't even interview the husband. And the only reason that that interview was there is because they came forward after seeing the, I believe the 48 hour special or something. There's a huge difference between postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. And if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, it started out as depression. And then it suddenly morphed into psychosis. Depression, you might be able to hide. Maybe you're not bonding with your child, you know, as as deeply as most people would or as quickly as they would. Psychosis, by definition, indicates a break with reality. 
you can't hide that because you don't know you need to hide it. You think everybody's perceiving things the way you are, so you don't see them as being strange or different. She would have been exhibiting behavior that nobody would have been able to miss who spent any amount of time with her. Jonna said, she said, the woman told Bilton she just found out she was pregnant again and she couldn't go through it all again. And that the woman was, and in her opinion, she was suffering, the woman was suffering from postpartum depression. And in Rachel's statement, it also says, Katie may have been suffering from postpartum depression due to her being more on edge than usual since the recent birth of her child. And then she was pregnant again within such a short time. So they both make a reference to it being the new pregnancy. And I thought that was very odd. It seems too consistent to be real, I guess is what I'm, in my opinion. Um, Especially just like that, you would remember that 10 years later. Well, and who, other than a clinical person, says, I believe my friend was suffering from postpartum depression. You just say, I think she was depressed. That's just not a term the lay people toss around. And a stranger, nonetheless. Well, this is where I have my biggest issue with it, is the connection between the center person is Rick Olick. Mr. I can't remember receiving those emails. And who do they call Rick Olick? Who is the center of conducting this investigation? Rick Olick. And my biggest issue are the reports. when. I have cases in the South, and you bring up words like period, postpartum, uh, vagina, anything that has to, breast, anything that has to do with the female anatomy, or God forbid, uh, the period and she's bleeding, that sets a whole different tone with the investigative portion of the case. So as in Lauren Agee's case that Danielle pointed out this morning, police officers actually believe that she could not be sexually assaulted because she was on her period. They, they said it. We have it on tape. That's a, that, is a, that is something that they believe. So it's my personal opinion that it made the investigative group are all males in this, this scenario. When you say she had postpartum depression, no male, I believe, in the group is going to dispute that. So, Wendy, talk about postpartum depression. I have a nursing background. I've been a nurse for 20-something years, and I worked for an OBGYN for the majority of that time. Um, And I even called him and asked him some questions the other day because, you know, I just didn't understand it. And... She saw her OB the day before she was murdered, correct? Okay. When she went to that appointment, as a nurse and as a doctor, you say, so how are you feeling? How's your appetite? How are you sleeping? Okay. If she had postpartum psychosis or whatever they were calling it, she she would be having those issues. And her mother would have noticed. Everyone would have noticed, you know, because you're just not, if you're in a psychosis, you're not normal. You're not acting normal. And so my my question was, okay, she's maybe she had postpartum depression, but she became pregnant almost right away. So when you're pregnant, your estrogen, your progesterone, your levels go up greatly. 
and you feel good, you have energy, unless you have morning sickness and all that, but you usually feel good and your appetite's good and you're not really depressed. There is uh, uh, some depression when, when you're pregnant, but that's more likely if you have been diagnosed as like bipolar or schizophrenic. If you have, if you already have uh, mental issues, you're more likely to become in the psychosis or the depression or whatever. And so I just feel like everyone around her, especially her mother and the OBGYN and especially the nurse, because we're the ones that get all the info, they would have picked up on something. And I think she would have been forthcoming about that, you know, because she is a good mother. And the odds of getting uh, postpartum depression and perinatal depression is like one or two women in like a thousand. So yeah, it happens. Yes, she could have been depressed postpartum and while she's pregnant, but somebody would have picked up on that. She would have not been taking very good care of her kids. She would have been either sleeping too much, not eating, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And the the psychosis that they keep bringing up usually shows up when you're like either four, uh, four months pregnant or it gets worse at eight months pregnant. So, you know, she would have been having behaviors and symptoms that people would have picked up on. Even if you weren't around her a lot, you would have noticed, you know, the kids are dirty or they're hungry or whatever. And I think that uh, Aaron's behavior was more bizarre than hers. You know, I don't think she was in a psychosis. I don't believe she, she could have had depression, but I don't believe she was so depressed that it would have led to suicide. I just don't believe that. Especially holding her baby and pregnant with another one. You know, as a mother, you protect your kids. And, you know, why would she, if she wanted to kill herself, she, she would have, but I don't see why she would have taken her baby with her. There have been people who stated that Katie was out wearing wedges. And to me, that seems like she's kind of dressed up. And to me, that very much goes against postpartum depression. If you're depressed, you're schlepping around and sweatpants and a t-shirt and you're not going out walking around in your wedges. We need to go back to PI 101 when we analyze parts of Aaron's interview with the police. Agreeing and I'm also pointing to my hand because he should have witnessed a very swollen hand. Mm -hmm. If If you're going in and you're interviewing somebody it's the first time you're talking to the husband the wife has passed away you need to look at it as though this could be something more than a suicide. Are you not, one's maybe asking the questions while the other one's eyeing up, looking for signs of deceit, uh, watching for body language. How do you not see that? Not only that, but look around you. Look around the house. Like look for for any sign of, of a clue. Any detective worth their salt He's going to walk around a little while the other one's distracting him and, you know, kind of see what they can find. And Vicki actually said they did that at her house. They yeah. walked around her house freely. Well, they're supposed to assume it's a uh, homicide until proved otherwise. And Alec even admits that on 48 hours. You know, I mean, he, they know. I mean, so, yeah, they should have been examining everything. 
It's worth repeating the earlier quote from Stephen King. The truth is in the details. And when you look at the details of Katie's injuries, you have to wonder if a finding of suicide is the truth. A U. It was like from the bottom of a rib down around into the top or the bottom of the other rib. You're right. So the train hits her in a U section. In a U. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but it is precise enough not to cut through the fascia. So it's like going in like this. She's not chubby. She's a very skinny girl. So that's a very precise line and very consistent with the amount of pressure. So it is, it's not like it's deep at one point and then higher up. It's a very consistent, you know, you think of a train hitting you, it's going to really hit one side and then maybe not as much the other side. It's a very consistent cut from one to the other side. Again, how amazing that these men on Friday can go to the major's house and say she committed suicide by train. And that's the evidence is the U shape. And as you said, consistent mark across, and that's how she committed suicide and no blood in that area. And it doesn't match the, the cuts on her gene. And they also mentioned that they felt because River was found a distance away from Katie, that the impact of this supposed collision with the train would have thrown the baby to where she was found. Yet there's a tree line between where she was found and where Katie was, but there's not a scratch on River. There's no twigs or leaves or anything in her hair. It just defies logic to think that she could have flown through the air and landed with no abrasions, no scratches, no dirt, no twigs, no nothing. And I think that, I think the significance of River being placed in the water versus being found on the tracks or on the land is another indication of possibly the the scene was staged and possibly she had dried elsewhere died elsewhere, um, possibly drowning somewhere else. And they needed to account for water in her lungs in case of that being on the autopsy. Almost half of the left side of her forehead is flapped open. Again, a nice, very precise cut. And that's on the left side. Along with the flap on her left side of her forehead, there is a large cut on her right thigh, which cut the femoral artery, which would make her bleed out almost instantly. Um, There's also crushing to the bone. Cut on her right thigh is also very precise. It's very almost rectangular in shape and takes up her whole leg. But the, the cut is very precise the same depth and very precise all the way around. And what did we see on her clothing this weekend? So on her clothing, the cuts again on the clothing are very precise. They're ripped open on the right 
the right thigh, but not even in the same place of where the injury was. The cuts are down the side of the leg, the right leg. And there's a large linear cut, probably about 12 to 15 inches going along the top to the bottom of the right, uh, the, the back of the right leg. Her jeans, the jeans were cut, but her leg was not injured from that at all. Something I will say about the laceration to her head, and, and Vicki kind of pointed this out too, Kokinda, if I'm not mistaken, Kokinda said he wouldn't bet his badge that she got that cut, that, that injury to her head by hitting her head on a railroad tie. Let say, me, that, say that again. I want to hear that again. So when we were talking with Vicki, you know, that laceration, that nice smooth cut to her head, Kokinda said he would bet his badge that he got, she got that laceration by hitting her head on a railroad tie. Not only, so when we looked at the railroad ties, the top of the track kind of comes over where that railroad tie sits. So if she had hit her head on the railroad tie, she would have a line on the other side of her head where the, the track would hit the other side of her head. But also there's absolutely no crushing of the bone. If she smacks her head hard enough to make this, this laceration, she would have crushing to, her bo- to the bone underneath. So he said he would, Dean Kokinda said he would bet his badge. He wouldn't have to bet on anything if he would have tested it for blood, for bone fragment, for any kind of tissue or brain matter. For an investigator that couldn't remember much when 48 Hours was asking him the tough questions, he seems to be everywhere in this investigation. And the fact that Rick Ollick seems to be the center And we know from researching him that there are other cases in question and they're being reviewed. One's going to court soon and they're very interesting um, to look at. So maybe the people in Berkeley County already know it, but I know that the people listening would want to hear what cases are also in question that Rick Alex has been in charge of. And we'll talk about that when we focus on Rick Olick and, you know, him as a professional researching and investigating this case. What we discussed today is a small fraction of the details of Katie River and Aiden's death, and none of it gives you a hint of who they were or how much their family misses them each and every day. It's one thing to read or listen to these stories, but quite another to volunteer your time and resources to help. I want you to hear from a few of these crowdsourcers about why they do it. Yeah, I think that's important to look at. And I think that's important for if people are listening and knowing something, if they'll call the tip line and tell us, because the only way we're going to know something like that is somebody telling us. And I guarantee people have talked about this case and know what we're talking about, whether they're false statements, fake news, whatever you want to call it. 
they're going to come forward because they always do. It's 10 years later. People have seen what's happened to Vicki. They've seen, we, in 45 days, we have all these people looking at the case. And every day, it's like Lori says, there's something new. In 10 minutes, there's something else that's equally as shocking. And I'm sure people are scared in that community. But I'm also sure the media is waiting to do another story on what's really going on here. So as far as why, um, I, I would say it's just like working on Jonathan's case, Lauren's case, Christian's case. It's just, I hate seeing the heartbreak these families go through and the injustice that they're up against. I want to help them. Hearing their stories break my heart and I want to do something to change it. For me, it's always been, I cannot stand to see someone who abuses the power that they're given. So they're given this position of power and they should respect that and use it to help people and not to do what they want to do with it. And it makes me very, very angry. And so when I see these moms who just want justice for their child who has done nothing wrong, who a wrong has been committed on their child, and now the police are re-victimizing them by saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. This was, you know, is a suicide. Accept it. No, no. How about you do your job and you look at the evidence that's presented and you use whatever education you have and figure it out because it wasn't a suicide. Like I strongly with all my heart and soul and brain believe it was not a suicide. I don't think they could justify that if they were act, if they were going to try to recreate how she received the wounds that she had. I don't think it's possible physically, like laws of physics will not be able to have them recreate it. And that is enough alone to get it changed from a suicide to a homicide. That is all the evidence that you need to get it changed from a suicide to a homicide. She, by the laws of physics, could not, you know, do the reconstruction, prove that it could happen, because I don't think they'll be able to. And so I want to help Vicki as much as possible because I feel another wrong is being committed here. And, and I feel they're not listening to her when she is begging them, begging them to help her. That's what they're supposed to do. Do no harm. They're supposed to help their citizens and they're not doing it. They're not listening. So that's why I went down there and that's why I will continue to help until, you know, there's, there's justice or there's nothing left to be done. So I do Patreon in order to just get a, a inside glimpse at how these cases have been um, handled and mishandled. I feel that we get puzzle pieces and it helps us to reconstruct what actually may have happened. Um, I like giving the victims a voice because they don't always have one anymore. Um, and I think in this case, Katie and River and Aiden um, never got a chance, especially the babies. You know, um, Katie was said to have postpartum and depression and suicidal 
manic thoughts, which just isn't true. Um, and when you look at the scene, there's absolutely no blood. There are some strange markings on Katie and River that are completely unexplained. And I think that we need to take those puzzle pieces and, and kind of put it all together and see if we construct what really happened. I've had the experience enough to only a very small fraction of a degree where law enforcement was no help when I needed them to be, or just even being in a situation where people make you feel like you're crazy for what you're saying or wanting to think something out or, or have something happen that nobody wants to deal with. I mean, try being a woman in a male dominated workforce, not private investigations. That's not what I'm speaking about, but you know, previous jobs too, just, you don't always have a voice when you want one or when you, when you have the actual, I don't want to say answers, but the right ideas and good ideas and things that need to be presented or talked about. I just put myself in their shoes, these mothers, and it just breaks my heart. And how can you not help help people have a voice when you know what that feels like on such a minuscule level to what they're dealing with? It helps me feel stronger in having a voice and hoping that this creates change to help them find that voice again. And not even just like Katie or Christian, but the mothers, because really, yes, their children are the victims, but right now they're the victims because they're the ones that are being treated horrendously. And it's just this heartbreaking. So I guess a, a few years ago, I started um, listening to podcasts and then I was listening to one and they were talking about the Curtis Flowers case. I was listening and hearing about how these investigative reporters we're looking at this evidence and just digging through it. It had, you know, rat feces and different stuff through it. And they found information. They compiled it. And because of them, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm very naive. And I had no idea. I, I just always think that people are kind of doing their job and doing things. And when I heard that what had happened to Curtis and then what these investigative reporters found, um, I was shocked honestly. And then it made me want to do something. And so I, I joined their Patreon. And then I found out about Sheila. And then I was shocked again and learned, you know, just about how she investigates these cases and helps these families. And I was all in. And I just, it feels so good that Sheila empowers females and females to become private investigators, which after this, I became one. And it, it's because I want to help people and it's a way to do it. And Sheila's looking out for people that, like, especially these moms that are, you know, that it seems like their words get turned against them and people in positions of power they can make them seem like they're crazy and that they're, you know, making things up. And Sheila's a voice for them. And she truly goes in and investigates when sometimes or a lot of times from what I'm learning and seeing, it doesn't happen. And so that's why I'm a Patreon member and now a PI because of Sheila. And I just, I want to do everything I can and follow in her footsteps. I like to work these cases because having a legal background um, as a paralegal and also having my PI license, I have a, a viewpoint that not everybody gets to see in that I understand that you have to push. You shouldn't have to, but you do. When people are in these situations where they or a loved one have been victimized, they really rely on the authorities to A, 
know what to do, and B, actually do it. And you you really have to be your own advocate. You have to know what's supposed to be being done, and you have to follow up to make sure someone is actually doing it. And people don't know that. They just don't realize it. And, and these are smart people that we work with. They've just never been in a position to have to know. And so for me, it's really, really gratifying to be able to come alongside them and say, here are some steps that we need to take. Here are some things that you need to think about and steps that, that you need to take while we work with you and, and really empower them to know that it's okay to question things. Uh, you know, everybody that's spoken before me has talked about people being made to feel that they're maybe crazy or pushy or whatever. That's your loved one. You be as crazy and pushy as these people want to think and call you. And I want to be one of those people that walks alongside them and says, no, you're not crazy. And I'll get in there and push with you. Thank you for the hours and hours and hours of putting into this case. Thanks to my Patreon people for hours of helping this family. It is making a difference. You, we're holding the people that are in authority accountable to this family. And for those that don't think it could be them, it can be you. The next time it may be your family member that you're fighting for. So I ask for people to speak up for Vicki. It's very important that we don't leave these mothers alone. We don't want anybody doing anything irrational. We just want the right thing to be done and a true investigation. And that's my last thing. Berkeley County said they closed the investigation. They've turned it over to SLED. In fact, that's not exactly what happened. They have turned the case over for SLED to investigate how they investigated Vicki's case. So that's all that's been turned over. However, there's no documentation. And yes, we have SLED's um, information where they said they don't have documentation. It could be verbal. But again, record keeping and FOIAs don't seem to be important in that area. So the biggest thing we can do is write the governor. You can stay anonymous. You don't have to tell people in Berkeley County you're listening to the podcast because there are a lot of people listening to this podcast. You can write the governor. You can ask him to do a proper investigation. It's the least we can do as human beings and citizens because there are three lives that have been lost. It is unbelievable at what we've seen in 45 days of looking at this case and what has been ignored. And really what very much needs to be looked at is these men who came in and said, Katie had postpartum depression. They're not psychologists, psychiatrists, or medical professions. Their job was to investigate and gather evidence and do the right thing and test things, test carpet, test a uh, railroad track. The evidence is overwhelming that this Amtrak train did not hit her. And I'm happy 
for anybody to write the governor. I want people to do the right thing and be nice. But I'm telling you, people are watching around the world. If you have tips on this case, write tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call and leave a message at 888-599-0008. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call 1-888-599-0008. Join Patreon and crowdsource justice with private investigator Sheila Wysocki. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at one 800 273-8255. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host, Sheila Waisaki. And Announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and Private Investigator Jenny Moore for their boots-to-the-ground, passionate, laser-focused research. 